Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor. For the last nine years, I've done nearly 400 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris Effects products for more than 20 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you some great filmmaking content. Today, we're talking with Langdon Page, one of the two editors on the Ace Eddie-nominated BFE-winning documentary, Navalny. Langdon's credits include documentaries, including Detainee One, The Cost of Silence, and Maplethorpe, Look at the Pictures. He's also edited the feature film, Mary. Navalny was co-edited with Maya Hawk, who was unable to join the discussion. Before I hop into our discussion with Langdon, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for macOS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free, no limits, 14-day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen. And for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, head on over to BorisFX.com and check out the Boris Effects suite, which includes Sapphire, Continuum, Mocha Pro, Silhouette, and Optics, all in a low-cost monthly or annual subscription. If you want to read this interview with great visual support, you can go to BorisFX.com AOTC. That site has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now, Langdon Page on editing the Ace Eddie-nominated documentary, Navalny. Thank you so much for joining me. My first question for documentary editors always is, why start the film the way you started it? It starts with this interview where he's asked the question of, what do you want to say if you if you die? <laughs> why start the film that way? Right. Well, thanks, Steve, for having me on. Just first of all, uh, my editing partner, Maya Daisy Hawk, sends her regards. She couldn't be with us today, but she's certainly with us in spirit. And in fact, the beginning is a part, in large part, Maya was responsible for cracking the beginnings of edits, especially documentaries, as you and all the listeners know, are often the hardest parts. They get made and unmade and remade repeatedly. They're often the place where one starts and also the place where one ends in the editing process because the beginning seems to always be changing depending on how the picture is coming together. And so for a long time, we struggled. You know, a large part of the body of the show was pretty clear to a certain degree. We'll get into that, I'm sure. But the beginning was always sort of evasive, elusive, as it often is. And it was actually not until really late in the edit when we started incorporating more of the sit-down interview. We had it sort of sprinkled throughout all the way through the editing process. 
And then there was something that was missing in the cut. And with Maya and director Daniel Rohr and especially producer Shane Boris, but also the rest of the producing team, Diane Becker, we just felt like we, we had this very riveting thing that was rocking and rolling and was very effective and we wanted to get it further. And there were a couple of things we couldn't crack, which we can come back to, but in the end, cracking those challenges was what opened up the clarity to starting the film with that interview. Well, let's go into those challenges. What were those things that needed to be cracked? In the case of Navalny's story, you know, we had a very compelling verite thriller, really, that Daniel Rohr and the production team were sort of fell into and were fortunate enough to to have cameras rolling on in real time in Germany as as Alexei Navalny was recovering from being poisoned with Novichok in Russia. And so the the body of the film was this thriller of his recovery, the investigation into who did the poisoning in partnership with Christo Groza from Bellingcat, who was the fascinating character in his own right, and Maria Pevchek, who works with the Anti-Corruption Foundation, Navalny's foundation, which, which works day in and day out to uh, reveal and, and bring to light corruption in Russia, which is one of Russia's biggest problems in terms of undermining its democracy. And it's one of the methods by which Navalny has for almost two decades been trying to bring down the corrupt regime in the Kremlin. And so mm. all of that stuff was happening in real time. That was largely the body of the film, all heading towards this somewhat incomprehensible ending, which was Alexei Navalny's return to Russia and the very likely probability that he was going to be detained, if not worse, as soon as he set foot back in Russia as the leading dissident, highly critical of, of Putin's Russia and the whole corrupt regime. And sort of this underlying tension in the film of why would this guy who's such a charismatic figure with such a loving family with such noble ideals, which is to bring democracy back to Russia for the first time, some many would argue, why would he risk it all by going back into the jaws of the tiger? Which, as those who watch the movie know, ultimately is what happens. So there's there are a lot of conundrums there, but in 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 large part, most of that arc of the film was pretty self-evident. This wasn't a picture like this wasn't a doc like so many where you start wondering about it's somebody's life from before where they're gone and it's okay do we tell it in a linear fashion or do we play with chronology lots of films really need their structure to be constructed in the edit and this one in large part really wanted to have a very linear progression chronology because it's just so fascinating and riveting as it unfolded the challenges were how do we get under this guy's skin because he, as a character, is so charismatic and is such an effective wordsmith and communicator as a politician that we were very conscious, both Daniel was very conscious in the shooting and we were hyper-conscious in the edit of not being pawns to anybody's agenda. Our, our role as documentary filmmakers was to hold this guy's feet to the fire and find out who he was because it's there are too many histories in geopolitics of foreigners getting involved in another nation's quote unquote democracy resistance figures only to discover that you know based on foreign support those resistance figures come to power and end up being just as corrupt as the ones that were deposed or worse 
And so we didn't want to fall into a situation of being either proxies for the CIA, which we knew we would be accused of by the Kremlin anyway, or unscrupulous people who just fell for this guy who supposedly represented democracy. And that was largely, I mean, there are a couple of very obvious historical things that Alexei Navalny has done and said that that were massively problematic for us, specifically with regard to white nationalism, or Russian nationalism, and and immigrants in Russia. And so we knew that we wanted to deal with those aspects of his history in a way that didn't let him off the hook and try and understand where that was coming from and actually understand, is this guy who seems so charming and has this you know wonderful family and everything, is he actually just a Russian nationalist? Is he a white supremacist? I mean, who is this guy? You know, we all followed the Navalny story in the news as the poisoning happened, but most of us aren't Russian history or current politics specialists. And so I didn't know, and most of us on the team, we had some, obviously, some deep advisors who who are specialists in these things, but most of us are specialized in filmmaking. And so we wanted to understand who this guy was and make sure we weren't, you know, selling or or portraying a whitewashed version of a character who actually underneath had some had some horrible tendency. So that was the first challenge. How do we deal with his, what what was, what's commonly known as the Russian march, which was the, we deal with it in the film, a nationalist, Russian nationalist march that, that happened in 2011 and 12 that Alexei went to, spoke at in a very inflammatory way, using the same rhetoric that he said at, at all of his rallies, which was, we need to get together and drive out the corrupt current regime. And then we'll, once we have a healthy democracy installed, then we will, you know, have discussions about all these things, visa regimes, immigrants, abortion, homosexual rights, all of the issues that a healthy democracy has to deal with were secondary to getting rid of the corrupt authoritarian regime, which was squashing and clamping down on the rule of law and freedom of expression and the most basic elements of a democracy. So that was his justification in going and dealing with this crowd of of neo-Nazis, basically. But how, as filmmakers, to deal with that within the confines of a story where he basically is the hero of the story? That was our big challenge. And we tried a lot of different ways of trying to understand it, trying to contextualize it. We had other people talking about it. We obviously reviewed all the archive and Alexei had it in certain ways at certain times disavowed or recontextualized that moment to clarify that he wasn't, that he's not a neo-Nazi and, and that marching with, with these unsavory characters is a political necessity. And that in a, in a healthy democracy, just like the ACLU has fought for neo-Nazi marches in this country, freedom of speech applies to everybody. These are all very complicated things, but how do we get, deal with that in a way that doesn't derail the film, take over the film, and and make it all about that? Because ultimately, these are things that happened over a decade ago. And after looking at different avenues to solve it, specifically getting quote-unquote expert perspectives from the outside or journalists, which are which are they're not ways that the film is constructed. There are no outside interviews. There are no sit-downs other than the characters in the film. It became clear in sort of a bolt of lightning moment to me that what we needed to do was go back to the well and take advantage of the footage that we already had, which was almost 40 hours of sit-down interview that 
that Daniel did with Alexei. And 40 hours. Yeah. He did it over the course of three very long days with three cameras all the way through. It was an incredibly thorough interview where, because Daniel knew that Alexei, once he went back to Russia, there was going to be no pickups on this film. There was going to be no way to say, oh, Alexei, can you just call in and tell us this line, which, you know, or, or answer this question, which I forgot to ask. So he spent days trying to get everything imaginably possible, including the Russian march and some of these few unsavory or challenging or whatever you want to call them, prickly historical positions that Alexei has, has taken. And once the sort of inspiration happened and, and we broke through this idea of, okay, wait, let's, let's use the sit down more than just as sort of connective tissue to help us understand what's happening in the, in the thriller through line. Let's actually delve into it as a way to get underneath this guy's skin or find or behind the scenes. Let's figure out who this guy is through this sit down, which was shot, like I say, with three cameras, but also sort of the, the main camera is him staring at the camera across the table as though you're sitting at the bar with this guy. There's an intimacy to it, even though it's clearly very staged, it's very aesthetically beautiful and potent. It's a very weighty setup. So I went back through all the interview again, very late in the edit, which is always a great tool and, and practice. Once you get to sort of the latter part of, of a film and you know really you're honing in on where it's at, to go back to the the primary interview, the quote unquote hero interview or whatever, and go through it from top to bottom again, there are always things that, since that's usually where we start, and there are things that we've forgotten from the initial edit that pop out, oh shit, that's right, I wanted to so-and-so, I wanted to do this, or God, this great moment, or oh my God, that insight that I knew needed to be in the film, we had totally forgotten because we were trying to figure out all these 50 million other problems. And it's context too, you know at that point, the things you're trying to say, and you're like, oh, that applies, right? That's right. And also, or, you know, oh, we have him saying it this way, but he actually says it way better two versions later. And those are the types of changes that get it, you know, that are the last two or 3% of an edit that really take it to the next level, where you're finding those subtle, small nuances in the way something is said, which might actually deliver more emotional resonance than just the way that you have it in the film to communicate the the what or why. And you went back and actually listened to the interview as yeah. opposed to reading the transcript, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I had been, we had obviously the, the transcripts and I had been referring to the transcripts, but there's really nothing that can compare with watching and listening. And I do it often in tandem with the transcript and will sometimes play on double speed with the transcripts, especially through sections where, you know, I'm pretty sure we're not going to be talking about, you know, their childhood pet or something. But as we all know, what might read great on a transcript in a script, once you look at it, might actually be total flubbing garbage. So, yeah. And, Werner Herzog says that he doesn't do transcripts at all. Yeah. Says they're pointless. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with that about 80% of the time. I mean, they're, what they're good for is the, is an initial. Finding something, right. Well, they're good for finding specific words, for sure, but they're also good for an initial throwdown of ideas. I mean, like a paper cut. Yeah, a paper cut, or which is usually the best ones that I have worked with have multiple versions of an idea, as opposed to this specific over frankenbited version to this over frankenbited version, trying to crunch the film into whatever the director or writer's idea might be. 
generally, I find that more of a selects type of script is very helpful just in terms of starting to wrangle the ideas, you know, where it's like, oh, we're talking about this idea and these three bytes from these three characters sort of circle around the idea. Is there something there is the kind of script that that is helpful to me in the edit. And and much beyond that and searching for specific words or phrases, I agree that the transcripts are often more trouble than they're worth. If you're making a documentary that is allowed the organic time and space to become a film, if you're making a TV show or are dealing with the confines of a locked-in time frame for, for post, then a strict transcript-based script is essential, obviously. I started my career in, when I moved to L.A. working in, in hardcore industrial e-entertainment television. And we were cutting half hours in five days and hours in two weeks. So the only way to do that is when you've got a locked script before you sit down to start the cut. But that's, you know, that's formulaic television. That doesn't have anything to do with a cinematic experience in a documentary. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you mentioned was that essentially the approach was a linear story, but it's not completely linear. Do you want to talk about the reasons for leaving the linear structure? I never do a completely linear structure because I don't believe life is lived linearly. Even though there is a certain linear chronology, which we are all in some ways shackled to, there are constantly on a daily basis departures from that. I mean, for, you know, as much as eight hours a night, we're dreaming. And so what's happening in that space? And that to me is really where, that's where cinema is found, is in the dream space. And so every, so if you live your life going to work and having lunch and coming home every day and putting the kids to bed, that might be your linear story. But then what's happening in your dreams is what elevates your life to another level. And it's the same thing when you're constructing a cinematic narrative. If you just stick to what happens during your waking hours, more often than not, in my opinion, it's gonna be a pretty boring movie and it's gonna be pretty boring to build. And so it's only through dipping into those nether dream spaces that that cinema really comes alive. And that lives outside of any sort of linear time frame. Sure. I would challenge you that, oh, well, we have to live in the linear time space. But then I think about my emotional life and I'm thinking about some failure of yesterday and I'm hoping for some something that's going to happen in the future. So even though I'm living linearly, my brain is going backwards and forwards, certainly. Sure. Yep. When Navalny wakes up from the coma and they tell him he's been poisoned, it leads back to the interview and the edits seem to be done almost for comic effect. First, the edits are sentences, then half sentences, and then almost every word is an edit. Do you remember that section? Of course. Yeah, I, I loved that. And I actually went back and rewatched it. I'm like, I love that the progression of pacing through that section. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure, of course. I mean, it's editing is often very akin to music composition. I'm not a musician, but I'm a big fan of music. And I obviously work with musicians, a lot composers in the construction of films, but, but sort of 
there's an element of the editing toolbox or sensibility or whatever you want to call it, which is sort of uh, musicality and the way we construct things to access emotion directly draws from a lot of the same tools upon which music is constructed. And so in the case of Alexei's returning to the story and waking up from the coma, because really the way that's constructed is that and this was another reason why we wanted to, we really wanted to be sure to put a face on him literally at the beginning of the movie is we start the movie with this guy. We get to know who this guy is. We get a bit of his backstory and it all builds to him getting poisoned on a plane and going into a coma and literally disappearing from the film for about 15 minutes. So we kill off our protagonist in the first 11 minutes and then he disappears. And so we had to be sure that one, we were emotionally attached to this guy and weren't going to forget him and knew that it was his story, but also that we were going to be able to sustain his story without him for the period when he's in the coma. Unfortunately, we had a lot of other supporting characters who did that very effectively. But all of that builds up to the degree that you don't actually even notice that Alexei is absent from the story for a, a good 10 minutes or, or maybe maybe 12. You're, yeah. You're right. And such that when he re-enters, when he wakes up from the coma, which is, you know, we've sort of circled back around to that part of the story, suddenly you realize, holy shit, this guy is back. And that's what his chief of staff is saying. Oh, you know, he's back. It's really him. And we dispel this tension of that, which we built of who, you know, is he going to survive? If he does wake up, is he even going to be able to function because he was brain dead or may have been brain dead in the coma? You know, you never know how somebody's going to come out of a coma. And then lo and behold, this guy comes out firing on all cylinders, laden with profanity, and his humor is totally intact. It had all the elements of a cathartic wake up back in the world. Thank God we have our protagonist back in, in the hot seat and the way to sort of heighten all of that was, I mean, Daniel had shot Alexei walking into the sort of bar sit-down setup, interview setup. He had shot it from a couple of different cameras and had him do it a couple of different ways with this, you know, not knowing how it was going to fit, but with this idea that it might be a way to wake him up. He actually had that as, as a concept from very early on. And so once the sort of rough-ish cut together of that was put together by the first editor on the film, Eamon, who did an amazing string out of the first pass of just work with Daniel and get all the ideas down, you know, help Daniel express everything that he's got in his brain from shooting this thing. And then that's where I came aboard. And then from there, it was really about just honing the timing, really finessing the musical elements of this re-entry, reawakening of, of Alexei so that it had the maximum amount of emotional impact in terms of excitement and also comedy and catharsis. I've worked on a couple of documentaries and it always when I start them feel a little overwhelmed. You're like, I don't even know where to start. If I got locked in to a starting point, you know, if, if I couldn't change it, what would I do? And I, I feel like you, you just need to find a place to start. And obviously, as you just pointed out, you kind of weren't there for that section, but is it just building scenes at the beginning? Is it a question of, okay, I'm not going to worry about the final structure, but I know there's a scene where he wakes up. I know there's a scene where his wife goes to the hospital and is turned away. I know there's a scene where his daughter gets sent off to college. And you're just working in those 
pod segments. Yeah. Whenever I sit down on a show and where nothing has been cut and I'm the first, you know, I'm the first pair of hands on the show, I completely identify with that feeling of <laughs> holy shit you know uh here, here we go again and do you know do i still know how to ride rodeo everybody has that feeling and for me that first ride what i need for my process is to construct something which may very well end up completely thrown out but captures some sense of emotion and or magic, some sense of the electric heart of this story, whatever that may be. And it's, it'll, it's probably shorthand, it's probably incomprehensible, but just starting the process, what is it that, that brings this thing to life? Like it just, I need to glimpse a bit of life in it. And so I usually will watch and watch and watch what's there. And I'll take some notes, but without any sort of obligation to construct something useful, I will start pulling together things that grab me for mm -hmm. some reason, whatever it may be. I did this picture before Navalny called Detainee 001, and it was about the, the first, it was about John Walker Lynn, the first detainee of the War on Terror. I hadn't gotten all of the stuff that we had shot yet, but I had a bunch of the archive. And I was curious what actually was our, I just started looking at what was the archive that was available. And there were all these amazing shots of when this plane lands in Washington, DC, and then there are all these cop cars and secret service cars driving away. And there's just this chaotic scene and they're all, and then they all drive this big parade of cars at night drives into this garage at some holding center, jail cell place for terrorists in 2001. And there was just something so evocative of November and October 2001 in this big fanfare of detention, like we got a criminal. Finally, we've got somebody. And they go in and this massive steel garage door thing rolls down. And it, that for some reason, that sequence of archive, which was incredibly well covered by every news channel at night, I had to put that together. And we never see who's in the car except for one glimpse with one photograph that somebody snapped. And so I just like threw together this thing of all these cars, this parade of cars. And then just as they're about to go into the garage, one camera flash, you see it in the video, and then you can cut to the one shot in that the AP photographer got of this bearded, freaky looking character inside that all of this is surrounding to make sure he doesn't escape. And he looks like a homeless dude, like totally unthreatening. <laughs> and, and, and then they go into the garage and it was like, okay, we're off. Now let's put some meat on that bones and figure out what the hell is going on here. I love it. it with hindsight being 2020, with this film, if you had started on this, had all the, the interviews, had all the verite, had all the archival at your disposal, what would be the first scene you would have taken to work on Navalny? It's an abstract question, which doesn't apply um, in <laughs> okay. this case. Yeah, because because there are films like Detainee or the, a film I did with Oliver Stone called Persona Non Grata, where you just, you don't know what the fuck it you have. You don't know what you're doing and you just need to find it. There's the urgency to, to make a film because there's always the urgency to finish it, but but only based on sort of the confines of, of the world of filmmaking, which is budgets and to get it out there. 
in the case of Navalny, there was a different calculus because there was an impetus from the moment this film stopped shooting, which was the day Alexei returned to Russia and was arrested. There was an impetus to get this film done and out into the world as fast and as effectively as possible in the interest of protecting Alexei Navalny's life by raising the awareness on what he had just gone through. It wasn't a film that started with, oh, let's find out what it is. It's let's start throwing down everything that we got and see how fast we can make a great film and get it out there. I was working on other things and wasn't available to start when we when they first started the edit. But literally within the four weeks after Alexei was detained, the transcripts and translations were made. And shortly thereafter, Daniel and Ed Stenson, the assistant and incredible associate editor, and Eamon started literally just putting stuff together, just throwing down scenes. Daniel's a very accomplished filmmaker for his young life and had been on the ground shooting it. And so it was very handmade. And he had a vision for a lot of different scenes. And, and like I say, there was an, a central narrative that was pretty evident. And so it was about just starting to throw all that together. And then I came available, like I say, a couple of months. It was, well, it was six weeks after they started and they threw together that first, what I call the vomit pass, which is often what you just have to do on something like this. I came on about six weeks after the vomit pass. And then, yeah, we turned it around into a first cut within like six weeks after that. And that was sort of quite honestly, about 65% of the movie, you know, it needed finesse and whatever, but it really was the story, which was, which we pretty much knew was there. And then the next, let's see, that was about the middle of July. And so from July until Thanksgiving, which August, September, October, yeah, about, so then the next three months, basically we spent getting it from that 65% till the end. And that was done partially remotely. And then we were working together with Daniel and I in Los Angeles. And then we went over to London to work with Maya, which was another fascinating aspect of it. You know, I love working with other editors. I like my ideas, but I really love other people's ideas and feel that working with other editors and the, the collaborative process, I think is, I would guess is why most of us become editors in the first place. And so to work with other creative people, both directors, producers, and also other editors is great because everybody brings something different to the table and says, hey, wait, this is working, but what if we tried this? Would that make it better? And then it's like, no, fuck, that's my idea. No. <laughs> oh yeah, you're totally right. Let's, to let's definitely do it that way. Love it. One of the things that I liked was kind of the little revelations of character around some of the sit-down interviews where you either held before or after Navalny starts to speak, he would say something, stop speaking, and yet we're still on him. Can you talk about pacing that and the value of holding on someone after they finish speaking? Sure. For a lot of years, I was really into really fast editing, cuts per minute in a beats per minute mentality. Um, mm -hmm. and it's all that ET training. It, well, it's MTV training, man. I grew up in yeah. the 80s. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I never wanted to, you know, I never wanted to work at the entertainment television. They were the only place that would hire me when I came, when I moved back <laughs> from Chile. The first time I discovered editing was Natural Born Killers, really. You know, it was like, holy shit, that's what, like, that's where a movie's made. And then did a lot of studying into uh, older shit, but like always was fascinated by the speed of the cut. And 
it took me a long time to sort of come around to the revelation, which is so obvious that, you know, if you slow down, people can actually feel something. I made a couple of pictures with Abel Ferrara, as he likes to say, if you're bored, slow down, which is That's a great quote, a great insight, because truly, if you're going so fast, a lot of times there's nothing for you to emotionally hang your hat on and it just gets boring. And so if you slow down, suddenly you got something you can look at, something you can feel and you want to find out more. And lo and behold, it's no longer boring. Over the years, I started playing with that, investigating with that, internalizing that. And then it was probably on a picture that I did with Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbato called Maplethorpe, Look at the Pictures. And on that one, we really played a lot with expressions in sit-down interviews because it was a highly archive-based show. Maplethorpe obviously was dead. We had audio recordings of him, but it was largely, there was no narrator, obviously. It was an HBO show. The narrative was constructed verbally through these sit-down interviews with these incredibly wonderful characters who knew Maplethorpe in New York in the 70s. And their expressions before and after answers or in between answers carried so much emotion that we started really embracing those moments and letting people sit longer because there was comedy in what they would say and how they would react once they were done answering. If you actually just left the time for them to react to themselves. At this point, it's kind of standard procedure to be looking for things that are the outtakes or whatever, the slightly more off-camera moments, but actually working with those expressions in conjunction with, you know, as expressions, the way that you would work with actors, reaction shots, is it's a really fun and, and fascinating and sort of a different way to, to deal with interviews rather than just using them strictly based as for their content and delivery, but actually as character moments. So then you turn interviewees into characters. I did an interview a while ago with somebody, a director that pointed out the difference between skating over a scene and living in the scene, that that's the difference, that you can, it can be more boring if you just skate through the scene, if you get through it as quickly as possible, than if you take the time to really feel something in the scene. Love it. Speaking of that idea, I love the little scene with the donkey, feeding the donkey, but clearly that scene to the plot means nothing, really. Talk to me about the value of a caring or feeling or whatever you, whatever you think the reason was for a scene like feeding the donkeys. I mean, Donkey Pony was totally essential to the plot in the sense that, I mean, from a very practical standpoint, it was his recovery. And he talks about that. It's, it's his taking a walk with his wife every day as part of his PT. And there was at one point we had a whole through line of his physical therapy and his recovery and he does exercises and all this. I mean, you know, he came out of a coma and the reason why he stayed in Germany was to recover physically so that he had all his strength to go back to Russia, which we didn't really identify until later he was doing because specifically if he were to be thrown in prison, he wanted to have enough bulk on him and enough, you know, muscle tone that he would be able to survive the solitary confinement that he's currently enduring. And if you look at him now, he's a very gaunt figure, but imagine if he had gone back before he had done all that physical training. So on a very superficial level, there was a, an essential reason for the donkey pony scene to be in there. 
that's not why the scene is there. The scene is there because it's it's one of the earliest and most essential scenes of his relationship with his wife. And their banter is totally revealing about not only how they interact as a husband and wife that challenge each other, that neither is subservient. They're both taking the piss out of each other and in that way probing each other and pushing each other on and laughing through it all and humor as a way to dissipate the tensions of this incredibly difficult situation in which they find themselves and world in which they find themselves as high-profile political figures, opposition figures. It's also a, a very deep insight into Alexei's character as an individual and that that he really, that is a through line all the way through the picture of his, of his dealing with struggle through humor. I mean, we have a lot of laughs in the picture before that, but, but it really drives home this feeling like, oh, okay, as serious and intense as the subject matter is, the filmmakers are aware and give us as an audience permission to laugh because the subject himself is laughing and taking the piss. If we don't laugh our way through these most serious of situations, we'll never survive. One of the things that the film hinges on, I don't know whether you want to mention this, although the film's been out for a while, but there's the huge verite scene of the phone phone scam, I'll call it, <laughs> where he decides he's going to call these guys that he thinks might have poisoned him. And you think there's no way there's no way he's going to get anybody on the phone. And if he does, there's no way anybody's going to talk. And it becomes a, a core moment of the film. Can you talk about constructing that and building up to it? Alexei and Christo, the journalist from Bellingcat, who did the investigation to identify who these FSB members were and found their phone numbers and, and sort of devised the means, the technical means by which to contact them and all that. And then, and Alexei's team, specifically Maria Pevchek, who are the three main characters who were involved in that morning of making these phone calls, they all knew that there was a very, very small chance of getting anything out of it. And that any of these trained assassins as that are part of the military intelligence part of the Kremlin. So one would think, there's no way they're going to fall for being duped or are going to say anything to the first approach was Alexei calling and saying, Hey, this is Alexei Navalny. Why'd you try to kill me? And not surprisingly, they all hung up. Then they figured, let's try this other way and pretend to be somebody else and try punking him. The first one, as you know, recognizes Alexei's voice and hangs up on him. The second one is a chemist who didn't have, probably have nearly the, the amount of military training as the others. But anyway, he totally falls for it and thinks that he's talking to some senior level person in, in, in military intelligence and that he has to deliver a report. And so he does and talks for so long that by the, I mean, literally we have, th that phone calls about six minutes in the film, but it went on for about 45 minutes. And by the end, like Alexei and uh, Crystal leaves the room and goes to the bathroom. They were all bored. They were like trying to figure out what to ask this guy <laughs> because he was by that point just all chummy with him and volunteering information. We knew obviously from the get-go that that was a centerpiece scene because the Kudratsev character, the, this chemist, delivers the confirmation that it was a Kremlin-organized hit on Alexei, which is a shocking revelation, obviously. 
So obviously we knew that that was going to be a centerpiece of the film. There was an initial cut of it, which was, you know, way too long and had more of the characters. They, they made a lot more calls that were dead ends before the Kudratsev call. But in that case, you know, that's the kind of scene where, you know, from the beginning of the edit that it's going to be in the film and it's going to be a centerpiece and it's a big production number. And it's just about in some ways, it's about throwing down a first version of it to start seeing, getting enough of it on its feet. And then you just leave it because you know you're going to come back to it. You know you have to make it rock and roll and shine and be fantastic. But that's just crafting. There's not going to be, you know, in a scene like that, you know you're not going to intercut it. You're not going to leave. It's a very verite in the moment, watching history unfold in real time, quote unquote, type of procedural, which our job as editors is just to craft it so well that you don't notice the editing. Yeah. I was about to say that as an editor, I didn't realize how much that was crafted from a 45 minute phone call. I just, you know, you, you watch a scene like that and you don't think what the other elements are that could go into it as an audience, right? Like there could be more dead ends. Like how many of those do you want? Well, you said you put in a bunch of them and then called someone. I had, a, I'd pretty much had it, you know, by, you know, the couple that didn't work out. I'm like, okay, uh, they, it, I, I'm not expecting anything from this. So I don't need any more of these failures. And then I didn't realize that that conversation went on so long. It was crafted. I felt like I just saw what was on the, you know, what they got on the phone. That's amazing. It's yeah. fantastic. Well, that's interesting because there were two elements to that, which we had in mind, which was one was as soon as the phone call happened, there was this very real world discussion about, okay, what do we do with it now? The decision was made by Daniel and the production team that obviously, you know, we're making a documentary about this and it may be our cameras that have shot it, but this is essential for the larger impact of freedom of speech, democracy in Russia, human rights, and a whole lot of real world things that go far beyond the filmmaking team. And so it was agreed immediately that the Anti-Corruption Foundation of Alney's organization would be able to use the footage and release the calls as whenever they, as soon as they wanted to, in the interest of trying to build pressure on the Kremlin. So by the time we were in the edit, a very long version of these phone calls already existed on the internet for anybody to see. When you're dealing with something like that, which had had millions of views, I mean, it broke. It was a massive news story when it happened, especially in Russia and, and Europe, but even in the US where sometimes we care about things like that. So when you're dealing with something like that, that's had a lot of exposure, you sort of wonder, okay, you know, it, it, you just have to think to yourself, does it matter? Has anybody seen it? Do you build it for people who have seen it or for people who haven't seen it? Or obviously you try to make it relevant for both. And then the other thing was, yeah, how, how much editing goes into a piece like that? And it's interesting that you felt like you didn't see it because there are a lot of crosscuts and non-continuity moments that are specifically left in that edit because I didn't want to pretend that it was not edited, you know? And was, I, I definitely got the sense that it was edited. You know, you cut to the woman with the phone, you know, shooting it. You cut to expressions like people can't believe that, you know, what's happening. But I didn't realize how much longer the phone call was. That was something I never saw on, on the internet and never felt in the edit. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's fine. It's, I appreciate it because what drives that is the emotion. And there's an emotional continuity to that scene because there are lapses in time and things that, that may not have joined up in reality, in chronological reality. They are an emotional continuity that just draws you in and you believe that it's happening and in a space that's all its own. And so that's what I find fascinating as an editor is to get into that zone, cut a scene, and then by the end, it's built in a way that you don't notice the editing is quite fascinating. I've heard that term before, but I really love the idea of emotional continuity, that the cuts themselves, if they're not continuous or there's a jump or something like that, doesn't really matter because the emotion, the emotional continuity is there. It's really all that matters in terms of constructing cinema. I mean, if somebody's paying attention to the fact that, you know, somebody's hand position doesn't match from one shot to the next, then it's not a very well-cut movie. Yeah. You've already lost them, right? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk quickly about pacing. There are moments, as you explained, where you're jumping through time, where a 45-minute phone call happens in six minutes. But there's other moments that are held or drawn, and I'm thinking of the airplane as Navalny's flying back to Russia at the end, you get that sense of like a thriller of the building to a climax. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a huge production number, so to speak for a documentary. And it was really fun to cut, you know, again, there was a first version of it laid out and then it was about you know, really honing in the balance between what's happening on the ground and the repression of the protesters on the ground and the expectation and sort of the glimpses of hope that all these people who showed up who were not rabid political figures or protesters or whatever, these were normal everyday people who showed up because Alexei coming home represented the hope for a healthy democracy in Russia. So, those were the stakes. And then to be on that plane, which was an absurd scenario. I mean, it was the only people on that plane, aside from Alexei and Yulia, his wife, were journalists. Every seat on there was bought up by a news agency. And so there were more cameras. I mean, there were just cameras everywhere to the point where the pilot is, you know, we didn't include it, but the pilot's going, if everybody doesn't sit down, we're going to land this plane until you do, you know, because I can't have, you know, all these cameras are literally like all the aisles were blocked. It was chaos. But within that, we had two cameras of ours on that plane and the intimacy of what was going on in Alexei Navalny's head and in his mind and in his holding of his wife's hand and Yulia's look at him amid all of this chaos spoke to the hope that it represented for a large part of Russian people and the sacrifice that almost certainly was involved in the eventual arrest, if not worse, that was going to happen as soon as they touched down. So that internal emotional life of that scene was so rich. And it was just there in the way that he looked out the window. That was not a scene that was a procedural scene that you wanted to just get through because you had to know, you know, yes, he goes back to Russia. Done. He gets on a plane, the plane lands, he gets arrested. What's actually happening there is somewhere between a hero's return and Icarus flying too close to the sun. And I want the audience to be able to have time to swim in that 
contradiction and emotional challenge and have time and space to reflect on their own life in that context. Can you talk about the choice to intercut back to the team in Germany as he's being arrested? Well, they were watching and it was a triangulation of events that, you know, I just spoke to two of them, but the third element of that triangle was his support team in Germany for the cause, so to speak. The important thing was that Alexei went back. At that point, it was not necessary, nor was it wise for his entire support team to go back, his chief of staff, Leonid at the time, and Maria Pevchek, his investigative right-hand partner on, on most of the, the investigative work that he's done. She's now his chief of staff, actually, and head of the Anti-Corruption Foundation. But it would have been foolish from a strategic point of view for them to go back and him to, you know, not only have the head cut off of the organization, but also the, the lieutenants would have been absurd. Mm -hmm. But they were obviously emotionally so connected to it. And also Christo, who had been a, a central part of setting all of this in motion and, and being a part of the film and the investigation and the revelation of the poisoning. He was watching it from Vienna. And so it was about tying events that happen on the ground in Russia to the rest of the world and the outside world and this amazing ability to live in events worldwide in real time so that it's where you have tv rain broadcasting from a cell phone in the middle of the throng of people and getting arrested at the airport but that transmission being watched in western europe that's the power of where communication technology is right now, which makes something like Tiananmen Square in the late 80s impossible to happen because autocrats can't get away with the time delay of footage of an event like Tiananmen Square happening and then having to be smuggled out of the country and the two-day delay of it being having to be flown over the ocean and then finally broadcast. Nowadays, we can watch it live. And the world's response and accountability, we can talk about questions of effectiveness, but the actual what's happening is no longer a technical challenge. You know, that's which what we saw in, you know, in the Gulf War, in the war in Afghanistan, and, you know, this idea of embedding journalists so that the wider public doesn't get to see what actually is happening is the way governments around the world control information and, and make choices without necessarily having to have accountability. Talk to me about the creative choice of dropping the sound out as Navalny is arrested. It was an emotional vacuum. And amid all that chaos that we had been building to living in the screaming guitars, everything was going on and and the screaming lawyer, I've got all the evidence, and the horrific stormtrooper-esque, you know, customs officials, and all within this confined space of a visa border space with the cameras, it was all claustrophobic and chaotic and dystopian. And all of that was building to the point of no return, where it was clear that the lawyer was on the other side. She had already entered Russia and the stormtroopers weren't going to get up, live, let up. They weren't going to let Alexei through. And that becomes clear in his expression and Yulia, his wife's expression. And it was about once the, the fight is done, it was about opening up a little emotional space to say goodbye, basically. 
It was the the parting of this husband and wife. It was an an admission that, okay, I've lost this battle. It, you know, it sort of is an echo of what Yulia said at the Academy Awards the other day: of "Stay strong, my love." You know, that that's at the core of their story is this incredible love story, and it's a very tragic emotional moment for them as individuals to be separated. And so the power of, of sound to create chaos and envelop a chaotic emotional moment can also sometimes be heightened by just pulling the sound out. Especially when you watch that scene in an audience, in a theater, it's stunning because we mix that we mix the movie at Skywalker Sound with an amazing team and we worked very hard to have big sound and to sit in a theater filled with people and all the sound goes out what you hear in that moment is the music and your neighbor breathing and it creates an emotional intimacy that is so immediate that ultimately isn't you know we hold that as as Alexei is is hauled off and our camera guy was amazing he's literally standing in in the visa this this claustrophobic space pans around with alexei getting taken off on one side and spins around 360 and stops and captures yulia on the other side having just gone through the passport control and she looks back and the camera guy lands pulls focus just as her eyes see her husband for the last time and she turns and walks off and then we cut to her going down the escalator and and in this long tube of an escalator where there's nobody else because everybody just the seas part for yulia to pass and then the next we bring the sound back in as with the papers ruffling of the the next guy in the customs place letting her through and saying good luck to you and to your husband and it's just like, it's it's a very emotional scene and, and pulling the sound fully out of that was a big part of it. And to wrap up with a continuation of emotion, I loved coming back to the donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about the value of that and choosing to do that. Yeah, that was the brilliant insight of producer Diane Becker. We were sitting in the edit and the the end was pretty much in shape you know we were we were still shaping a little bit you know we knew that in terms of what the specific cards were that were being spoken at the end and and we had some we were still crafting the end and at one point we got a call from our camera guy Nikki the DP in Germany and Austria and he said he and producer Odessa Ray were going to go and meet up with Yulia and Zahar, who was studying in Germany, Alexei's son, and Dasha, who was on spring break or something from, from Stanford, was visiting her brother and mom in Germany. And so they were all going to get together and go back to the town where we had started, where Daniel and, and Odessa had started shooting with them. And it was one of those things. It was just, you know, we didn't, there was not really any prep. It was just, hey, Yulia's around with the kids. We're going to go shoot them. And Diane said, go shoot Donkey Pony. And... Mm. And it was like, we all just, we were sitting in the cutting room and it was one of those light bulb moments where we went, exactly, go shoot Donkey Pony. We want to see where the kids are. We want to see at the end of the movie that they're okay, you know, and that Yulia's okay. And that as a family unit, they still are smiling. They still have their humor, which is what Alexei left them with, obviously. But 
Alexei is absent and his little pony has that last look. Again, there's an emotional connection there because in the earlier scene, you sort of, you know, there's there's this whole banter between him and Yulia about his donkey. I mean, his pony is better than her donkey. And so when he's not there, the pony is sort of his stand-in. And again, it's it's an emotional moment. But I mean, to me, one of the most fascinating parts of this whole project was from an emotional, uh, in in the edit specifically, the emotional balancing act slash sort of contradictions and an exciting diversity between the humor and laughs and the emotional pathos. And those two things really feed each other. People often, when we would screen the movie, would come out and say, God, I had no idea it was going to be so funny. And or they would ask in a Q&A, why did you make it so funny? And it's like, you know, it's not that I made it funny. It's that it wanted to be funny because of how absurd so much of this is and how Alexei deals with the world. And it's so absurd and and how these mortal threats like Christo deals with, he, he's on a kill list now and yet manages to have his humor as he can't return to his home and is forced to to live outside of Europe away from his family because there are assassins running around Europe ready to kill him. The stakes are so high that the only way anybody who actually is trying to take on authoritarianism can survive those threats, it seems, is with humor. And narratively, humor unlocks the emotional access for the tears. And so that's that was one of the most rewarding parts of of crafting this picture was to access the emotion of humor and let that build to the emotion of tears. That's a great place to end this interview. I really thank you for your time, for your expertise and for allowing us your insight into this uh, great film. Congratulations on your work. Thank you so much. My pleasure. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support, head on over to borisfx.com AOTC, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to Langdon Page for joining us on Art of the Cut. Thanks to Sam Rosenberg for editing today's podcast. And thanks to our partner, Boris FX, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check them out at borisfx.com and jumpdesktop.com slash cut. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening. And please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that to get more great Art of the Cut interviews every week, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app.